Well, hello and welcome to the newest episode in season two of A Few Minutes With. I continue to be grateful for everyone who has been watching on YouTube and listening on Apple and Spotify and all the other places that this is available as a podcast. So thank you for the continuing support. One of the things that we've seen during this time of pandemic with everything else that's going on has been a sudden and rather unexpected shift to virtual learning and homeschooling. Uh, there are a lot of families that already utilize this, but there are many, many more that are now facing this and they're feeling unprepared, they're feeling uncertain, and they're feeling unresourced. So my guest today is someone that can speak to all of those preparedness, certainty, and resources. Uh, Julie Bogart is the creator and owner of Brave Writer, which is an online writing and language arts curriculum that over, I think, the last 18 years has been a resource for more than 25,000 students. Uh, it's a great re resource, online courses. Uh, she's developed a support group uh, called Brave Learner, which I think has more than 4,500 active participants. Uh, she's an author. I don't know how she finds time to do that, but uh, she's written several books, including one last year uh, called Brave Learner, uh, Finding Everyday Magic in Homeschool, Learning, and Life. Uh, her work with Brave Writer has been profiled in the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, regional media, all kinds of places. And uh, all of this grew out of the fact that she homeschooled all of her children. And for me, it's a personal point of pride that Julie and I go back several years. Uh, we actually met as part of an online theology discussion board and blogging group. So now it's nice to circle back. So Julie, how are you? It's so good to have you. Thank you for being here. My gosh, it's great to be here. Uh, I, I'm realizing that I sent you old statistics. I think we've reached over 100,000 people now and we are over 20 years old. Yeah, so it's Brave Rider has exploded in the last year because of exactly what you're saying, uh, the COVID experience where we went from people who did it by choice to people who were suddenly thrown into it. Uh, and it has been an exciting, exciting journey. I did want to add the other way I know Matt Rhodes is he was in my fantasy football league. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I won one year and you won the cup the second year or vice versa. It was one of those, maybe you won first and I won second. Do you remember that? I do indeed. And in fact, one year, I think the trophy was a Santa Claus on a motorcycle. <laughs> yes, exactly. And you shipped it to me. I think that was exactly what it was. Oh my gosh. But oh. It is with great joy that I'm here, and I, I really relish the opportunity to share with your audience. So thanks for inviting me, Matt. Oh, thank you. Well, let me begin, and it's a question I ask a lot of my guests during this time of COVID. How are you doing? And I know your, your family is scattered quite literally around the world. How have you all been doing during this time? Oh, thank you. Yes. Uh, so I have five adult children. I homeschooled them for 17 years. Some of them did public high school. Some of them didn't. They all went to college. Uh, one went to grad school. I have another one who's in grad school. And so this is literally where they all are. My oldest son, Noah, lives just over the border of Ohio into Kentucky with my first grandchild. So he's my favorite child right now. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and he is a self-taught computer programmer. And then I have a daughter who is a life coach and she lives in Sayulita, Mexico. Then I have a son who is a human rights lawyer and he lives in Bangkok, Thailand. 
Then I have another son who is an IT specialist and he lives in Denver. And then my youngest daughter just started her graduate school program in California for marriage and family counseling. Wow. Yeah. I knew they were spaced out. I had forgot they were spaced out that far. So I know it's, <laughs> I've seen you post a few times when the family gets together. So I know it's particularly special and important when you can get everybody together from stretched apart that far in the world. Absolutely. You, you mentioned something just now in talking about your kids, and I, I mentioned it briefly at the outset, but you uh, had homeschooled all of them for 17 years. What was your motivation for doing that, uh, you know, the, the driving force and making the decision to, to self-educate? It's a great question. Uh, it originated actually because of my personal story. So back in 1984, I was considering going into mission work. And at the time I was meeting with people in Spain who were preparing to do it in the country that we ended up choosing. And while I was there, I was not yet engaged, but I was there with the man that became my fiance. And one of his good friends took me aside and said, so Julie, are you going to homeschool your kids? And I looked at him, this was 1984. And I said, home, what, what, what did you say? He said homeschool. I said, I don't know what that is. And so he spent the next 10 minutes giving me like the short rundown on the opportunity of home education. There was also a little bit of a rant against the United States government mixed in because that's the 1980s. And I uh, really loved this notion of personalized education. Like the moment he said it, it really captured my imagination. Mm -hmm. So by the time I had children, which was several years later, I had done research. The man I married had a sister who was a home educator back before the laws were legal. And I just, what I saw from those I knew who homeschooled was this ability to tailor education to the individual child and to have as kinesthetic and varied a curriculum as mm. possible, which really appealed to me. So by the time I started homeschooling, I was no longer living abroad, but I had already bought in and seen it in action and knew it was what I wanted for my kids. That's really interesting. Um, did you see, um, you know, as part of this, based on your experience and whether you saw it at the time or you're reflecting on it now, did you see that maybe doing this yourself would have filled in some gaps that may have been missing in conventional in-school education? Oh, yes, 100%. Now, interestingly, I had a pretty good public school experience. I lived in Southern California. We were in the Las Virginas School District, which was fairly small. It was outside of the LA Unified. And at the time in the 1970s when I was going to school, I had all these very sort of progressive teachers who had been in the Peace Corps. They were sort of ex-hippies, right? And so they were very experimental. Uh, in junior high, I remember we had a day that was dedicated to a Renaissance fair, and we had spent months preparing for it in our social studies classes. And then the whole day, the whole school conducted a fair. Uh, I had a teacher who, when she was teaching us about the Aztecs and the Incas, she asked us to design pots that matched the designs of mm -hmm. those groups. So we did. And then she took it to her personal kiln because of course it was 1974 and she wore long skirts <laughs> and brought it back. And we had these gorgeous pots we'd made, but here we were sitting at our seats and our pot is there and right next to it is a hammer. And she says, I want you to take the hammer now and destroy your pot. And we all looked at her like she was nuts. And she said, just do it. So we gleefully jumped in and <laughs> broke our pots into pieces. And she came by with a box and scooped each person's pot into the box 
And then that was the rest of the day was over and we didn't know why she had made us do this. The next day we returned. She took us out into Malibu Canyon because that's where our school was. And she divided us into archeological dig groups. And each of us had a location where we had to dig searching for our pots that were now broken and in these cardboard sedimentary layers. And we had to detect what era this came from through a dig. This is the kind of education that was really popular then that is no longer popular now. And I think when I saw homeschooling on the horizon, I imagined that I could recreate some of that for my kids, knowing that the way education has moved is to standards, common core, and testing, which I didn't value as much. It had not been as meaningful in my own life. So the gaps that I see today in education have to do with this pushing, this constant pushing to prepare for the next harder space. Mm -hmm. So initially we say college is hard, we're gonna make high school harder. Well, now to get into high school, we gotta make junior high harder to match the demands of high school. We keep passing the buck down till we're now in New York City on preschool lists during our pregnancies, uh, where we have children who assume that they should be able to write a five paragraph persuasive essay in third grade because they might greet that format in 10th grade. This is not effective education. Education in my view, uh, and after tons of research and a lot of work that we've done with our families, is best communicated to a student where they are at the level they are currently presenting, Mm -hmm. not based on grade, not based on age, but literally based on aptitude and skill in that moment. So home education allows for some of that tailor-making. Do you think too there's a component, because I know school funding is always a perpetual issue. Do you think that not only is a big component of it teaching for the test, uh, but that some of these schools that may be in a position to do this simply are not resourced enough financially or in terms of manpower to do it. 100%. Oh my gosh, 100%. And especially in the at-risk communities, that's where we really see the inequity of our school system. This notion that we should fund schools based on property taxes, Mm -hmm. in my view, is the least democratic uh, system of education in the you know that we could imagine Uh, i know in france for instance everything is equitable so the way that they orient their funding it funnels through a federal and then it's redistributed equitably among all of the different provinces that has not been the american system and as a result you will have a school district like the one my kids were in where they could raise easily millions of dollars to go perform at the Rose Parade. And then we have a school district in Cincinnati Public where my ex-husband is a high school teacher. And when COVID hit, those students did not only not have computers, they did not have internet access at home. This is absolutely wrong. And to me, the reason homeschooling has flourished in the last 20 years, it's a reaction to all of that. It is a chief way that we critique this system. Uh, There are plenty of homeschoolers, by the way, who don't think about public schools at all. But for those of us who do, Mm. I think we see that there is inequity in the system. And by opting out in a way, we're bringing a critique, by withholding funds, by saying this is not fair, this is not the way that schooling should be done in America. 
Yeah, you touched on internet access here in Virginia in the area where I live with my family. <clears throat> there are so many kids in the county school system that just because we're in a mountainous area, uh, it's difficult to get internet and high-speed access to the homes, uh, just the lay of the land and where houses are. And I know that's one of the biggest challenges for anybody, homeschool or uh, students in public schools learning virtually. They just don't have the technology. And it's horrible to think here we are in 2020. Right. And even something that we take as basic now as high-speed internet isn't available to people that may live three miles up the road from us. It, it really needs to be a utility. The internet is like having indoor plumbing now. It, yeah. It's necessary. And I think the longer we pretend that it is something that we have to pay a high price for to have, we add to this sort of um, disconnect. You know, the problem for these kids who don't have access right now is that they were in many cases already behind the curve. So now what we've done is we've just expanded the distance between the haves and the haves have nots. So something as simple as internet access, I know it's not simple. I mean, technologically going through mountains and making that a priority yeah. will cost some money, but it's, it's a worthwhile investment. We do not want to sacrifice the sort of the intellectual capital of all of our children in these places just because we want to protect internet companies' revenue streams and their stockholders. That seems wrong to me. Yeah. So you've gone through homeschooling with your kids. Uh, you've seen the gaps in education. You've reflected on your own experience. When was the moment that you suddenly went, I need to start this in terms of, of starting Brave Writer? What was the moment and the inspiration oh. to, to launch that? Oh, that's a great question. So I was living in California at the time. My mother is a published author of over 70 books. So I grew up around published writing my whole life. Mm -hmm. And I was working in the field of writing. I was a ghost writer. I was a magazine editor. I was a freelance writer. And during that period of time, my kids were starting to get to the level where they could read and write. When I wanted to teach them writing, I just turned to my bookcases and pulled down, you know, Peter Elbow and William Zinser and Natalie Goldberg. And I just used the books that had influenced and shaped my own writing skills. Mm -hmm. But what I discovered in the homeschool space is that most parents felt uncomfortable teaching writing. And actually, we know that most adults feel uncomfortable writing, which is a huge indictment on the traditional education system. How could you go through 12 or 16 years where writing is a primary skill that is being taught and come out the other end and still be nervous about sending an email because you're not sure if you'll get critiqued for grammar or spelling right. or that you feel that you can't represent your thoughts in a way that someone would understand them. So that was a revelation to me. I didn't realize how pervasive that feeling was until one day a friend of mine came to me and she said, my kids hate writing. And I've got to know, how are you teaching your kids? I know you're a professional writer. What are you doing differently? So she brought me her homeschool curriculum for writing. And I opened it up. And the first lesson was how to write a paragraph. And there was a sample paragraph right at the top of the page. Mm -hmm. So I asked her, have you read this paragraph? She said, yeah. I said, well, did you like it? She said, what do you mean? I said, well, when, when you read the sample, did you think, wow, that was really great. I wish there were a second paragraph. She goes, no. So I took the book and I just closed it. And I said, all right, so now ask yourself why you would want to teach your children to write using a model that was so unmemorable. You don't even want to see more writing like that. Yeah. And that 
caused a pause for her. And she said, okay, I want to know what you think writing is. And she organized a seven-week Sunday school, actually, at our church at the time and invited all these parents. And I had homeschoolers. I had school teachers. It started with 15. And by the end of seven weeks, there were like 40 or 50 adults in there. And everything I said, they acted like they had never heard before. And yet for me, it was all like second nature. So that's when I knew. And the next thing you know, I started getting speaking invitations to talk about writing. And so I sat down and wrote my very first manual in 1999. And then from there, started online classes. And my goal wasn't to teach parents how to have writing assignments. It's to teach parents how to keep their kids from hating writing mm -hmm. and how to facilitate the growth of a writing voice. You know, I love, there was something really powerful when you were talking about opening the curriculum that your friend had shared with you and how unmemorable it was. I have to admit, and even thinking back to when I was in school, it was the mechanics of writing, Ugh. but it wasn't, uh, you know, I can't remember, we read wonderful authors that had memorable things, but as far as learning to write, it was almost the mechanics of it. And I don't remember writing or being encouraged to write in a way that you want to hear the next paragraph. And now for me as a priest and for so many other of my colleagues that are clergy and even lay leaders and teachers, it's something that we're almost, you have to do, especially me as a priest. If I'm preaching a sermon and I get through one paragraph and it's not memorable, people are going to tune out. And I can tell by looking in the pews who's like, yeah, we're, we're done. <laughs> how, how can we focus more on the memorable nature of what we're doing rather than just focusing on the mechanics of it? Oh my gosh, Matt, you're so insightful to have picked up that distinction. One of the first things that we teach in Brave Writer is that you need to separate the mechanics from the original writing voice, from the original thinking mm -hmm. at the earliest stages of writing. Because here's what happens with children. So when they're babies, they don't know anything about language. And during those first five years, the brain goes through the most growth it will ever go through in its lifetime, mm -hmm. acquiring language and becoming fluent in the native tongue. And by five years old, your child is more fluent than most second language speakers will ever be. So just think of how powerful that is, that a five-year-old can articulate in perfect syntax whatever they want to communicate with whatever vocabulary they currently have. Mm -hmm. Then we introduce how to read and write. And as soon as the child knows how to decode words, we assume that this sort of sophisticated level of fluency in speech can automatically show up in their handwriting. Mm -hmm. But the problem is the mechanics of writing are like a foreign language. Uh, punctuation is just a series of curves, dots, and lines that have to be taught in order for them to have meaningful relationship to writing. So we're expecting perfect punctuation. We're expecting perfect spelling as though the content of the communication is not valuable until it is perfectly transcribed. Mm -hmm. So what we do in Brave Writer is we separate those two. We use someone else's writing, like E.B. White, right? Somebody who's written memorably will take one of those passages and we'll have the child copy it for accuracy. Then later in the week, we will read it aloud to the child and the child will transcribe it while they're listening. They don't have to generate the original thought. All they're doing is learning how the flow of syntax 
We'll look when it's punctuated. We'll look when it's spelled correctly. And we work on those mechanics separately so that we can have times of what we call free writing, where you take whatever level of skill you have, and for children, it's low skill at age eight until 18 when it finally becomes mature skill. We let them express themselves. They can just follow the ticker tape of their minds and write down whatever comes into it and chase that train of thought and become truly interested in what they want to communicate, not how well they punctuate what they want to communicate. What we've discovered by following that experience is that as kids grow in the mechanics, they borrow those skills into that original writing voice. But if we start with the mechanics, they never feel inner permission to tap that writing voice. They hold it back. They dumb it down to match the mechanics so they won't get bad grades. I love it. It sounds almost like you're taking, you used EB White as an example, but it sounds like you're using almost a reverse engineering approach. Exactly. Taking That's a, your, oh my God, I'm going to steal that language. That's exactly <laughs> what we're doing. Yes. Taking, taking a car engine and breaking it apart so that you see the components and then putting it back together versus throwing out the carburetor and the starter and everything else saying, build me an engine. Yes. Oh my gosh. What a fabulous analogy. I have never heard that before. I love that. And I'll, I'll go further. The thing that is fascinating to me is that I think because school is managing 30 students and we are an outcome-based oriented system, mm -hmm. mechanics, you can score. Oh, there's no period. I'll mark that wrong. Oh, the spelling is poor. I'll mark right. that wrong. It's very hard to quantify the quality of insight. And so what typically happens is that a teacher who's cranking through 30 or 100 papers is quick to be a copy editor because it takes so much more work to engage the content. Mm -hmm. But what we do in Brave Writer and what's helpful about homeschooling is you have a smaller class size and you actually know the person doing the writing. So you're able to actually validate the content even if it's misspelled. You can say, wow, you know a lot about tanks. Oh, mm -hmm. I'm really curious to know how you beat that level on that video game. Look at this interesting metaphor you used here. You can actually identify the quality of the content first mm -hmm. and note where they don't know the mechanics, but don't hold them accountable for what they don't know. Actually teach it somewhere else because there's nothing worse than being a child who's being asked to write. Let's say you say, write about your birthday. And so your child writes, you know, I love the way the house smells like cinnamon rolls on my birthday because my mom always makes them. And then your mom reads this beautiful sentence that's a total compliment to her. And she says, hey, you misspelled house. No yeah. child is going to feel like they want to risk writing again. If yeah. all you see is a mechanics failure and you miss the spirit of the communication. Yeah. So here's the great hypothetical. I come to you, uh, wife and I have two kids and you know I'll just remove COVID from the equation. We've just yes. decided to shift to homeschooling have zero idea where to begin. And so my email to you is, Dear Julie, help. <laughs> I get this every day, so this is a good question. <laughs> so what, what would be the starter steps for somebody that is either struggling with the decision to go to homeschooling or is now confronted with the necessity of homeschooling and they don't know if they're resourced enough? What, what is the process that you walk them through to feel like that they're prepared and ready for this? So there are a few things that are super helpful. 
Uh, first, just demystify the legal process by Googling the word homeschooling regulations and the name of your state, because it does vary in all 50 states. The second thing you can do is Google homeschool support group and your city and see who is doing homeschooling in the location where you are. Now, I will warn you, homeschooling has largely been uh, religiously based. There's a lot of conservative Christians in the homeschool space in the United States. Mm -hmm. And those homeschoolers are incredibly friendly and they will have you know, resources a mile long. They may or may not fit with your family's perspective. So you can add the word secular. If you're secular, you can add a religious denomination if you have one, or you can simply use them as a starting point. Find out the lay of the land. Local homeschoolers will tell you about co-ops, about other support groups, about play days, about YMCA memberships, about ski groups or ski clubs. And that helps you not feel quite so alone when you start this journey. Right. The next thing I would recommend, of course, would be to buy my book, The Brave Learner. It is sort of my pedagogical guide to make sure that when you start homeschooling, you don't just bring school into the home. Mm -hmm. We want to actually take advantage of the properties of home to support learning. You know, so instead of setting up a desk and planting a flag in the dining room and, you know, ringing a bell and starting at nine in the morning with the pledge, this is now creating a lifestyle of learning. This is what you are embarking on. You are going to find a way to take advantage of the fact that you can make snacks during math. You can curl up in the sectional with a clipboard and your pet cat and do your writing assignment. Yeah. You can sit in the backyard for a read aloud. You can get in the car and actually go to nature rather than studying about it in a textbook. This is your opportunity to start to interpret learning through the lens of what it means to be a family and in a home. And I, I trust too, and I, I know, I think I'm answering my own question, but this applies not only to people that are doing strictly homeschooling, but even families now, uh, like my kids with COVID, have been forced to shift to a, a completely virtual thing where there's a bit more isolation and a bit more uncertainty. I assume this, these tips apply to them as well. Oh my gosh, completely. In fact, since March, I've just been nonstop on interviews. and literally every single interview asks this one question, which is, what is the first thing you would say to somebody who is a COVID homeschooler? Mm -hmm. And that's the first thing I say. I say, remember that you're at home, that recreating school is unnecessary, that your kids, when they go back to school, they will remember those requirements because the entire building, the framework for how you relate to school is established there. Mm -hmm. But when you come home, just think about yourself. You're out in the world. You're doing your job. I see you with your clerical collar on. I, I know that when I'm out and I'm doing something professional, I wear high heels. I always wear a bra. These are things we do when we leave the house and we become the person that fits into a system. Mm -hmm. But when we come home, we kick off our shoes. We strip the bra. We flop on the couch. And our kids have that internal feeling. So when we try to turn home into the feel of school, it violates something very profound for that child. This place where wow. they get to show up as themselves is suddenly transforming itself into an expectation factory. So what we want to do instead is acknowledge that they're at home. Yes, you're on your Zoom meeting right now for math, but I'm gonna give you a, play, a little bowl of peanuts and you can snack on those while you're listening. Yes, you can stand 
and do a jumping jack. You can take a minute and run outside with the dog between lessons. Yes, I will sit with you during math because it's lonely now. You're not in a class and it's boring to do math homework alone. So I will sit and we'll talk about each problem and we'll make it more interesting. That's the opportunity that you have if you're home with your kids. In fact, one mom asked me, I have a seven-year-old who is just crying every day. She hates Zoom. She misses the playfulness with her friends. She loves mm -hmm. dress-up clothes. And I said, well, how about having her pick a new dress-up outfit every day for her Zoom call? And this was like a revelation to the mother. But see, this is what we can do at home. So embrace the properties of home while you're trying to accomplish your goals and you'll get a lot farther. Well, and thank you for that, because what you just shared, uh, even in the last couple of days with our two kids here, uh, you know, I know since my wife is able to go into her office a bit more, so it's me at home with the kids. And I know when they're supposed to be in class, well, I'll see one walk in to get a glass of water. Well, aren't you supposed to be in class? Or another one will walk in. Yesterday, my oldest came down and was sitting on the front porch. I'm like, aren't you supposed to be in class? Well, the assignment is we're supposed to go out and, and look for birds and record it. So it's, it's also requiring that I change yes. my, my way of considering this and not being the type A parent of, have you done this? Have you done this? Why are you doing this? So yes. it's, it's, it's a mindset shift for me too. So I, I appreciate you saying that. Oh, good. I'm glad. I think it's hard for anyone to spend seven hours in front of a computer. Mm -hmm. And teachers have been tasked with an impossible situation. They don't know how to lead online spaces. That's not where their training is. So everyone is reinventing this together. And I invite parents and teachers alike to see it as an opportunity for reinvention and creativity rather than doubling down on the familiar. Education is its most vibrant when we reinvent, when we reimagine. Everybody gets bored of routine, of systems, of predictability. There is some health to a routine, but it can also feel like a straitjacket. And in a time of COVID where everything is topsy-turvy, bringing in some comic relief, some huga, you know, that coziness that the Danes are always telling us about, um, some connection to a parent who's invested and interested, not just a taskmaster, those can go a long distance. That's great. Well, you talked about uh, changing vision of education. So I want to shift gears to something I didn't mention or didn't mention at the outset about a vision you had for your own education. And that's when you went back to Xavier uh, to get a master's in theology. Yes. And if I remember correctly, in fact, I watched one of your speeches right after you gave it. Uh, your focus was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It was. I wrote my thesis on his letters and papers from prison. What What drove you? What was the inspiration to a pursue a master's in theology, but b to focus exclusively or specifically in this case on on Bonhoeffer's work? Yeah. So I was in a theological crisis at the time that I started my master's, and of course, Matt, you remember, we were having these incredible conversations on this one listserv mm -hmm. uh, about interpreting theology. I had been a missionary. I had been a member of sort of an evangelical charismatic church. I was um, ghostwriting for the founder of that denomination. I was very much in that, uh, that space. And then mm -hmm. the internet came along. And I remember very specifically that the homeschoolers seemed to have barged through those doors the most quickly because we were so isolated. And here we were, this very homogeneous, white, evangelical group of women, and we couldn't agree on anything. 
We couldn't agree on baptism. We couldn't agree on when you give communion, at what age. We couldn't agree on what inspiration of scripture meant. And that was so shocking to me. I kept thinking, if the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth, why is it so confusing? Why can't all of us find the same truth? Where is that dang Holy Spirit anyway? I need him. And um, those questions then provoked in me this hunger to resolve them. Uh, And so I started reading books. I remember very distinctly for the very first time being in the library and seeing um, On Being Christian by Hans Kung, 500 page mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. Here I was an evangelical and I thought, you know, I'm always reading in my same category. Maybe I need to explode out of my category and read Hans Kung. And I, my dad's Catholic and I remember he had had Hans Kung in our library when I was a child. Mm-hmm. So I pulled down this volume and I read it twice. <laughs> and I read it with a, yes, and I read it with a friend and I only had one question in my head who's going to hell? And I'll just give you the Cliff's note version of Hans Kung's answer. He never answers the question in 500 pages. And it took me reading it twice to realize maybe I was asking the wrong question. Mm -hmm. So that was the beginning for me. Um, Diedrich Bonhoeffer had been meaningful to me because of the cost of discipleship, of course. Right. But where I first really started getting curious and I'm just going to be very honest on this podcast, I haven't shared this in a lot of spaces, Um, was around the pro-life movement, of Mm -hmm. which I was a member. And I remember a leader in this one organization I was a part of, justifying the murder of abortionists using Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm -hmm. And that so stunned me and upset me that it sent me on a journey to read Bonhoeffer's works for myself. Right. And I became utterly fascinated with the letters and papers from prison. Then we had 9-11, and the first place I turned was back to that book. And so by the time I was in grad school, he was just my obsession. And what I hadn't known until grad school is the way that his thoughts, coming through Reinhold Niebuhr, had also been a part of liberation theology and black theology. And there was just this amazing synergy of answers to some of my most profound questions. And so that's how I got there. What a wonderful story. And I have to wonder, as you were talking, as you're walking this journey with homeschooling families, uh, there has to be a pastoral component to it as well, and not just the practical. Has there ever been a time, and this may be the first time you've considered it, so surprise, uh, has there ever been a time where the work that you're doing to support these families and the work that you've done in your own theological growth and, and development understanding you suddenly find that the two have intersected and you're standing at this moment where your MTS and your work with homeschooling are in the same moment at the same time. Amazing you asked that question because it happened yesterday. Ah. <laughs> Literally, this has been a very, a very careful journey I've been on. Mm-hmm. Some of it has cost me. There have been times where my public display of my questions actually got me kicked out of the state Christian homeschool organization, got me kicked out of being a counselor at my daughter's camp when she was in second grade, Uh, has uh, called me into question. I was the keynote speaker for a homeschool graduation and a contingent of the group would not let their kids graduate in that graduation because I was the keynote speaker. I have paid a price for being a person on a journey 
without declared positions at any given moment. And so in our Brave Writer space, we have not wanted to cloud the good work we're doing with Julie's journey. Mm -hmm. So I've been careful to not overshadow the message of Brave Writer with my personal story. That said, I have a story, I have political feelings, I have spiritual beliefs, or at least, I don't even know if I'd call them beliefs. I have spiritual formation that mm -hmm. is the way that I look at the, the lens through which I look at the world. And as this Black Lives Matter moment has occurred, as we've been confronted with the relationship of LGBTQ inside the homeschooling space, it's become more and more important for me to actually be an ally, not mm -hmm. simply be silent. And that has stirred up a lot of feeling in some of the conservatives. I've lost at times thousands of followers and then gained them right back. It's just been a very interesting journey. So this week in particular, some of that really kind of came to a head. And yesterday I took the opportunity to actually share some of my story and the thinkers who've influenced me the most mm -hmm. and how that shapes not only who I am, but some of what Brave Writer is about. And that just happened yesterday and it was, I'm sure you had this feeling when you went into your vocation, Matt. It's like, you know, the moment has arrived and you mm -hmm. think, okay, now I can own this. Mm -hmm. Up until now, I wasn't ready, but I can own who I am in this space and it will be okay. So thank you for putting it that way, though. I feel um, emotional about it. Thank you. Well, and I know too how, you know, again, we've known each other for a long time and I know how important your journey has been. And, you know, I've, we were talking before we started recording, but I've been thinking back to the time we've known each other. And I mean, you have drawn on some powerful people, uh, James Cone and Bonhoeffer and Martin Luther King and people that weren't just saying something, but were actually getting out and, you know, not just they were walking and living the words that they were saying. So uh, I well, know how important. That's the premise of Bonhoeffer, right? Mm -hmm. So his premise in Letters and Papers from Prison, if you, I mean, he has many themes, but the, the central idea is that we are expected to take responsible action in history, that we're not, you know, he comes from the Lutheran background, which has this sort of predestination quality to it, this mm -hmm. God sovereignty quality to it, that people could sort of rest on and not act. And so his counter move during the era of the Nazis, during the Holocaust, was to say, that isn't how it is. Mm -hmm. That a Christian is not delegating to some abstract notion of God's sovereignty, the events occurring around them, that it is up to us to be shapers of the history, the moment that we're in, responsible, fully aware. He even says, even if it causes him to be a sinner in that act, but relying completely on the forgiveness and mercy of a loving God who will understand that we are trying to act on behalf of the oppressed. Bonhoeffer gave me language to understand how to live those sort of um, discrepancies. And I think we're in a moment like that right now. We're all asking, is it enough just to agree or to align? And I just, I think it isn't. Um, so. And as, one of, and as one of my heroes, John Lewis says, it's mm. time to get in good trouble. Yes. Time to 100%. get in good trouble. We miss well, him already. <laughs> oh yes. Oh yes. That's a, that's a separate conversation we'll have to have sometime. Okay, uh, good. 
So here at, the, here at the end, before we wrap up, for those that are listening and are intrigued and are looking for help and resources, what's the best way they can reach out to you and get involved in the Brave Writer program? So if you're looking specifically for how to boost or inject uh, some fun into writing, go to bravewriter.com and download my seven-day writing blitz. I promise you, even the most reluctant writer is going to be like, wait, what? And I'll just <laughs> warn you, day one is graffiti, meaning they're going to write on a whole bunch of surfaces that you should be prepared for. <laughs> so I would start there. And if you have questions about our program, you can write to help at bravewriter.com and we have trained staff that will sort of introduce you to our online classes and our products in case you're looking for a way to get started. And then of course my book, The Brave Learner is available for sale on all platforms, wherever you buy books. And uh, if you go to thebravelearner.com, there is a free downloadable companion guide that is like a journal designed to go with the book. And that might be a nice way to help you wade into the waters of homeschooling. That's great. And with a track record of 20 years and 100,000 100, students, it's, it's working out well. It's yeah. working well. Julie, thank you so much, not only for being here, but uh, for sharing a bit of your journey and for doing so much to help families that are, uh, you just used the phrase, wait, what? There are so many families that are in that, wait, what am I supposed to do phrase or moment, phase? So, so awesome. thank you so much for being here and for, for sharing this with us. Oh, Matt, it is a complete pleasure. I love seeing you again. Great to see you. Take care. God bless.